What good is the church? Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think this is a very important question. I'm lucky enough to be part of a church that believes that the church is meant to be a blessing to her neighbors and to the world. We really want to be that kind of church. We're just followers of Jesus who are surprised by his grace and his love for us. So it's our desire to be instruments of that grace and love as we go about our everyday lives. This is our first season of our podcast. It's designed for our church, but we hope it'll be a blessing to others as well. This series of messages lays out the foundations of our sense of where God is leading us as we enter into a new season of ministry. My name's Chad Erb. I'm the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Kingwood. Welcome to the first season of our podcast. It's titled Gathered and Sent. All right, let me read you this. Uh, This is a paraphrase. This comes from the message translation. I don't know if you're familiar Um, This is uh, the message translation of the first part of Romans 12. So it says this, it says, here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. That's a paraphrase of scripture, but this too is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God for it. Um, So let's pray and we'll read more scripture in just a minute. Father, pray that you are present with us this morning um, as we take another passage that so many people, uh, even people outside the church, are really familiar with. Uh, but we see it in a new light. And so God, I pray that uh, in spite of me, in spite of us, that your word would be proclaimed, that it would be heard, and as we say every week, most importantly, that it would be lived. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. So like I said, that's an interpretation. It's a paraphrase of scripture. Uh, the message translation was written by Eugene Peterson, who's a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, he's a great theologian. I do really trust his work, even though it does read a lot different from scripture. Now, interestingly enough, um, I read you that, but I'm actually not going to preach on Romans 12. Uh, instead, I want to let Jesus do that. Uh, when I read that translation of Romans 12, uh, it made me think immediately of a story that Jesus told. And like I said in my prayer, this is going to be a story that you're all really familiar with. Uh, but before we hear the story, I want to remind us quickly of where we've been. Uh, since the first of the year, we've been laying out where we're headed, right? Kind of laying the foundation for the kind of church we believe God's calling us to be. Uh, so a few weeks ago, we talked about a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say in response? basically sell your stuff, right? He had sold his faith for idols. He had bought into the things of this world. Jesus said, you have to give it all away and then follow me. Sabrina followed up the next week, uh, telling us, encouraging us that that invitation to follow Jesus is exactly that. It is a gracious invitation. It's not a demand. It is an offer because true love can only be offered, right? It can't be compelled. So then we heard the challenging truth that if we've accepted that offer, if we've bought into that true love, now there's a command. There is a directive that comes from our master to go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them obedience to Christ the same way that we have been taught that obedience. We looked at the story of Jonah as we talked about that. 
Uh, Then Mark, last week, uh, not only nailing Star Wars, but he continued our theme uh, that we are called to not just occupy this promised land, not just to sit here and be happy being the church, but we are to look for the places where God is sending us. And he reminded us of the two words that we've used here each and every week, that we are gathered and we are sent. That God's people are designed to gather together, disciples making disciples, encouraging one another, equipping one another, worshiping and fellowshipping together to be sent into the world so that we can be effective witnesses to the good news of Jesus in our everyday lives. So that's kind of where we've been. As we look back at all of those stories, one thing all of this shares in common is this idea that our faith is a gift. And it's just a gift that can be received, it can't be earned, but very importantly, it's a gift that's not just meant for us, it's meant for others. So we believe that we are a church who's hearing the call to be simultaneously this gathered church, us here today, and a sent church, each of us out there the moment we leave this place. God's people are always God's church and always on God's mission. So that brings us to this story for today. I believe that this is a story that shows what it looks like when Romans 12 is actually fleshed out. So uh, let's see what scripture has to say as we continue to work through what it means to be gathered and sent. And I do want to tell you, uh, this might be a little stretching, this this understanding of this passage. Uh, I told the earlier service, it totally makes sense to me, uh, but that's all I can promise. (laughs) So, uh, good luck. (laughs) All right, here we go. This is from Luke 10. Uh, On one occasion, an expert in the law, a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, that's the same question the rich young ruler asked. So Jesus replies, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? All right, so we're going to finish this story in just a minute, but I want to look at how it's set up first. Jesus encounters a lawyer, an opponent, all right, the religious opposition to his ministry. We know that right off the start because it tells us that the lawyer went to Jesus in order to test him. So think about the image that that creates for us. Jesus is being put on the witness stand, or actually probably better yet, he's the defendant sitting in the chair as the prosecutor is about to make his case. So this lawyer asks Jesus a question, and Jesus replies in really the only appropriate way. He asks him a question back. He says, well, you know the law. What is it? So the man gives a good answer. Uh, He quotes both Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He knows his Old Testament. And he effectively sums up what I think is really the point of the entire narrative of Scripture, that God's created beings were created to love God and to love their neighbors as themselves. That's, that's the whole point. That lawyer, whether he meant to or not, he perfectly defines discipleship. If you want to know what a disciple is, it's someone who in response to Christ's love for them, loves God and loves their neighbor as themselves. So that should have been the end of the story. But he wanted to justify himself. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. He was testing Jesus, and round one failed. So try and try again. Let's see if we can get Jesus to say something heretical. To me, this really is the moment where the trial of Jesus of Nazareth begins. 
And as this trial gets underway, this trial that will lead him to a conviction and to the cross, this lawyer sets Jesus up to tell one of the great parables in all of scripture. So it goes on like this. The lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then turning back to the lawyer, Jesus says, now which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Then Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Familiar story, right? I think from our perspective, um, as we hear this like 2,000 years later, it's really easy for us to focus on a couple things. First, it's very easy to make the priest and the Levites the villains. I mean, clearly they're the ones who should have stopped and offered help, right? The truth is, there are actually legal reasons why they didn't. According to God's law, there are some reasons why they wouldn't stop and help a bloody and possibly dead man. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was obviously a dangerous road. There were nooks and crannies everywhere. If you want to attack somebody, one way to do that is to put a decoy out. They didn't know what they were facing. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the priest and Levite. What I do want to tell you is they're not necessarily the enemy in the story. The story is not Jesus' attempt to critique the religious elite. It's about something else. You see, I think the story is often really misunderstood. Because another way we read the story is we assume that this is like a moral tale. It gives us an example that we are supposed to follow or emulate. Be like the good Samaritan, right? Not like the evil priests and Levites. That's fine. It's simple. Jesus is deeper. You see, what we have to remember is that Jesus' parables, and this is so important, they are not about us. They are about the kingdom of God. They were about life in a kingdom that's radically different than ours. And the hero of Jesus' parables is not one of us. It's always a character that's serving as a stand-in for God. It's a character that's representing the king of this kingdom. See, Jesus is not just giving us a good moral example. I think in the story, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. Um, okay, so first, let's look at the characters of the story and see if what I'm saying makes any sense. Who do we have? Uh, we have a victim. We have an innkeeper. We have these robbers, the priest and the Levite, and we have a Samaritan. Now, most of you are aware Jesus is telling the story to a Jewish man, to a Jewish lawyer, and Jews hated Samaritans. We know this story as the parable of the good Samaritan that makes sense to us. That's an oxymoron to them. 
That made no sense. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. And from the Samaritan's perspective, the feeling was mutual. The divisions between the Jews and Samaritans were so deep and so personal that they've had a historic impact. We see it today between modern Israelis and Palestinians as two people who are fighting over a holy land. So Jesus is telling a story that the hearers know have good guys and bad guys. The question is who's who? From the lawyer's perspective, the priests and the Levites are supposed to be the good guys. The robbers along with the Samaritan are clearly the bad guy. But I think to really understand the story, we actually have to go deeper. We have to look past the story itself and think about the context in which it's told. Remember, what did the very first verse say? Why did the lawyer go to question Jesus? To test him, to put him on trial. You see, from the perspective of the lawyer, you have a good guy in the scenario, him, and you have a bad guy, this pretender, Jesus. It's his job to expose the bad guy. To the religious elites, Jesus was the enemy. That's why they tested him all throughout the gospels. Eventually, their test will lead him to the cross. It'll cost him everything. You see, I think the point of this story is actually found in the context in which it's told and not in the story itself. The setup is a, it's two men, a lawyer and Jesus. And in that context, Jesus tells a story that's ultimately about two men. A man who is desperate to find life, who's laying half dead on the side of the road, and then a good Samaritan. Look at this. You know that I'm a grammar nerd, or just a nerd in general. Um, but uh, there are 30 verbs in Jesus' story. Look at the weight. Look where the verbs go. Look who gets the bulk of the action. The victim, he occupies two verbs in this story. The innkeeper is described using two verbs. The robbers are described using four verbs. The priest and the Levite are described using three verbs each, so that's six verbs total. The Samaritan, if you do the math, 15 verbs. In any language, when one character is responsible for twice the action of every other character combined, that character is clearly the primary actor in the story. He's the point. The center of gravity in the story lies with the Samaritan, someone who is not supposed to be a neighbor, somebody who is an enemy. Look at this. This is one of the verbs that is used. <laughs> Try to say it. Huh, I'd never heard Greek sound so much like laughter. <laughs> Splanknitsomai. 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 Not only is this word so much fun to say, <laughs> it has a really important meaning. It means that someone has been moved to an act of compassion has empathy on someone else, identifies with someone else's suffering. They take pity and they're moved to an act of mercy on behalf of someone else. But here's the cool thing. This verb is used exactly 12 times throughout the entire New Testament. Nine of those times, it's used by the gospel writers to describe narratively what Jesus did, how Jesus responded to something he saw and what he did in response. The other three times this verb is used, it's used by Jesus 
to describe three characters in three different parables. A father of a prodigal son in Luke 15, a master who forgives his servants astronomical debt in Matthew 18, and then a Samaritan who has compassion, who has empathy, who shows mercy to a half-dead man lying on the side of the road. Do you remember what I said about Jesus' parables? Who does the primary actor in these stories actually represent? The father and the prodigal son, a clear reference to God, to God's unconditional loving forgiveness and restoration of this wayward son. The master and the servant's debt, a clear reference to God's activity, God's forgiveness of our debt, no matter how large and burdensome it has become. And the Samaritan, a clear reference to somebody who's hated but offers mercy anyway. An enemy who comes to the side of someone who cannot save themselves. A person who does absolutely everything necessary to completely restore this person to health, to bring a dead man back to life. Jesus is preaching the gospel. And when you hear the story now as a gospel story, can you see who is who? The lawyer is the dead man laying on the side of the road. He's us, any man or woman, someone who cannot save themselves. The priest or Levites, the one that we judge, do you know why they're in the story? They're actually in the story doing their duty. And the reason they're there is to show that even the priests and the Levites, as they're doing their religious duty, their religion can't save him. Do y'all see that? The religion can't save them. The only one who can save them is the one who stops, who sees it, who has splanxisomai on the man and chooses to save him. It's the Samaritan. It's Jesus. You see, Jesus knows that this lawyer sees him as his enemy. But in this story, he's offering to save his life anyway. You see, what's interesting to me, I love the way Jesus answers questions. He tells this story as a response to the question, who's my neighbor? But can you see that Jesus' answer is actually to a different question? He's actually answering the man's original question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do. You're laying there half dead on the side of the road, brother. And you see me as your enemy, but I'm going to the cross. I'm going to walk across and I'm going to pay the price to restore your life anyway. You see, it's so important that we see that because Jesus doesn't allow himself, the brilliant thing about Jesus, he doesn't let himself get caught up in somebody else's argument. He doesn't let himself get caught up in the back and forth debates that we have. The debate this man is trying to start is who's worthy to be loved Who's worthy of mercy and compassion? Y'all, to even go down that road, to give any answer to the question of who's my neighbor, who's worthy to be loved, it by definition excludes some people. To answer a question that demands limits is to make a comment on the people who exist beyond those limits. It's to say that somebody will be left out and by default, you're making a comment on their humanity. That's why Jesus doesn't answer the question, who's my neighbor? 
because he refuses to set limits on who is deserving of love and who is deserving of mercy and compassion. Instead, Jesus completely turns the table. He defines a neighbor not as someone who would be worthy of receiving my love. He defines the neighbor as somebody who's ready and willing to offer it. Jesus gives the lawyer this conclusion. You're worried about what type of person is your neighbor? I'm telling you a neighbor is somebody who acts in love toward others. The lawyer asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, only I can do that for you. The real question is, will you let me? And if so, will you then in turn cross the road and offer your life for others? That's where the example for us comes in. Will you offer the gift I've given you? Will you offer that gift to others no matter who they are and no matter where they're from? You see, this parable and all the parables are first and foremost stories about the kingdom of God, about what God has done through, for us through Jesus. They're not simple moral tales that we should use as models for our lives. They're about who Jesus is and what he's done. They then ask some really difficult questions. In this story, is Jesus your neighbor or is he your enemy? Is he the last person you want to see when you were beaten and bloody on the side of the road? If he is your neighbor and if you allow him to heal you, will you then accept it and offer it back to others? Will you offer real life to someone else? When we answer yes, uh, Jesus is my neighbor, I will accept that sacrificial work to bring me back to life. It's only then that we can obey, use the story as an example and fulfill the final words he gave to the lawyer. What's the last thing he said to the lawyer? Go and do likewise. You see, on our own, we are incapable of being true neighbors. Only Jesus is really capable of fully loving God and fully loving others as himself. Only Jesus is capable of being the good Samaritan. He's the only true neighbor to everybody. And it's only Christ's saving work in and through us that we are then able to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we embrace and live that love, then we will be compelled to stop asking the question, who's worthy? And we'll start asking the question, who's next? Once we are grounded in Christ's saving work on our behalf, only then can we ask the very practical question, so what does this mean for me? So what? I think this is a really important story for us. It is a story about Jesus, but it is important for us. It's an important lesson. Because if we are called to be a sent people, we have to understand who it is we're sent to. Remember what we said a couple weeks ago, where are we sent? Everywhere. Yes, even there. And to who are we sent? To everyone. Yes, even them. When I read you that passage from Romans 12, it talked about not letting the world be the thing that transforms our thinking. The truth is, the world has already done it. The world has trained us really well. It's trained us to think of each other the way the lawyer thought of Samaritans. This world has trained us to think of each other first as Democrats or Republicans, as black or white, as male or female, as Muslim or Christian, as gay or straight, as Americans or Mexicans. 
We are so good at finding so many different ways to label ourselves and to label others rather than embracing the only label that really matters. What would Jesus say to all of our divisions and our labels? What would he say? That's not who you are. You're children of God. You're children of God made in the image of God for the mission of God. Jesus would say, do you want to know if the Republican or Democrat is your neighbor? You want to know if the Muslim is your neighbor, if the Mexican or Honduran is your neighbor? Stop worrying about who your neighbor is and start being a neighbor to everybody in need. That paraphrase from Romans 12 said, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. As we go about our daily life, we should not miss all the opportunities that we have to truly live. When we see a need that we are able to meet, we should meet it. We are all in a hurry. We all have responsibilities. We have somewhere to be always. But we have to remember what Sabrina said months ago, that people matter more than things. And we can expand on it. People matter more than meetings. People matter more than schedules. People matter more than our busyness. I want y'all to know, I said this at the earlier service and I'm off script for a second, but y'all need to know that that last little bit that I just wrote, um, I wrote that last night after something that happened earlier in the day. I was taking uh, Benjamin and Anna to go get lunch and then off to different activities or whatever and I had to get back to finish this. I had a lot of work to do. And as I was driving down the street, um, neighbors, literally, a couple houses down, a very old couple, a man is up on his ladder into a two-story roof, digging out his gutters, and his sweet sweet wife at the bottom of the ladder, keeping it steady. And what went through my mind was, that's so dangerous, that terrifies me. Somebody needs to help him, but I'm too busy. And I can try to blame it on my kid's schedule, I can try to blame it on a million things, but you know the real reason? Do you know what was really in my mind that I didn't have time to let go? Writing this sermon. (laughs) And by the time all this clicked later on and I went outside to finally, you know, confess and see if I could help. Uh, they were done. Thankfully, they're safe. <laughs> they're all in one piece. This is convicting. Jesus disrupts us. He disrupts our schedules. He disrupts what we think is important. And he is constantly putting opportunities in front of us to serve and love others. People matter. People matter to Jesus so much. All people matter to Jesus so much that he gave everything to bring all people back to life. Now, life is real. Like, there's things that sometimes we have to do. So I'll tell you, I feel a lot of guilt about yesterday. But I am reminded of another truth. That I wasn't put here on earth to do everything by myself that I have 15 other neighbors around me. That we can best do this when we all hear the call, when we correct one another when we fail, and when we encourage and equip one another to respond when we get the opportunity.
God is laying out before us opportunities each and every day. We don't have to be like Jonah and be sent to some far off land. Every time you walk out of your house within your own home, there are opportunities to have compassion and mercy on someone that God dearly loves. That is what we are called to do. So what if we were a people who could see past our divisions, who could see past our disagreements, who could stop looking at others as other? And as odd as this sounds, what if we could learn to see all people as wounded and broken? To see all people as left beaten and bloody on the side of the road. Now, I know that sounds weird, but do you know what you can't see when you see somebody beaten and bloody on the side of the road? Do you know what you can't see when they're covered in bruises? You probably can't tell what color they are. You probably can't tell where they're from. You probably don't know their nationality, their sexuality. You have no idea what they believe. You don't know if they're anything like you. Do you know what you know? You know that they're in need. And Jesus is telling us that is all you need to know. In your brokenness, I love you and I gave everything to bring you back to life. Will you do that for somebody else? Let's pray. Jesus, you do push us, um, you stretch us, you take us to some uncomfortable places. Um, but if we can remember that just the regular everyday, the path of this life, the ways of this world, whatever, it just it leads us to death that the path to life is in and through you, um, then maybe that disruption can be more welcome each and every day. So God, have mercy on us when we fail, when we fail to stop and help our neighbors when they are in need. Give us eyes that we can clearly see the next opportunity to accept your forgiveness for our failings and to move forward in your love and to share that love with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray together as a family. We say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website. You can also follow us on Facebook and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.